The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello and welcome to The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, Kusama-rama. We take a deep dive into Yayoi Kusama's polka dots, pumpkins and infinity rooms as shows open in New York, Washington, London and Berlin. We're joined by three curators. Francis Morris, the director of Tate Modern in London, talks about Kusama's infinity rooms. Mika Yoshitake, the curator of an exhibition at the New York Botanical Garden, explains the fundamental role of plants and nature in Kusama's art. And Stephanie Rosenthal, director of the Gropius Bau in Berlin, discusses the huge Kusama retrospective that's just opened there. Before that, I'm delighted to say that The Week in Art has won an award. We won in the Special Interest category at the Publisher Podcast Awards on Wednesday. On behalf of the whole team, we'd like to thank the Publisher Podcast Awards and its judges, the many brilliant guests that have come onto the podcast, our sponsor Christie's, the art newspaper's superb editors and reporters, including those who've not appeared on this podcast but whose stories are the backbone of what we do, and, of course, you, our listeners. Thank you for being part of this journey. Now, as part of its 20th anniversary last year, Tate Modern planned to have a show called Yayoi Kusama Infinity Mirror Rooms, in which the two installations involving mirrors and lights recently acquired by the Tate would be shown together. Because of COVID-19, that show was postponed, but will finally open when the UK's museums emerge from lockdown in May. For this episode's work of the week, we decided to concentrate on one of those installations, Infinity Mirrored Room, filled with the brilliance of life. And I spoke to Francis Morris, the director of Tate Modern, about the work in the context of the hugely popular Mirror Room series. Francis, uh, we're going to talk about Infinity Mirrored Room filled with the brilliance of life. But I'd like to begin by talking about the very first Infinity Rooms, because actually they precede this by quite a long time. They're in, they were made in the 60s, and that really seems to me to be an extremely groundbreaking thing to have done in the mid-60s. Yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating aspect of Kusama's trajectory that there's an artist who forged her career through uh, traditional Japanese painting and an engagement with surrealism, and then a decade later hit the ground running in in New York and was absolutely at the uh, front of that uh, moment of innovation around participatory practice and immersive experience. And the very early mirrored rooms really were for gatherings of people, of her orgies, her performances, her her body paintings, and they were quite extraordinary. But I think all her work, from her very earliest painting, all her work was using whatever her medium was to create uh, the most immersive, expansive experience. It's really interesting. Even in these tiny drawings she made in the 1950s, once she laid them out, she'd lay them out in a kind of complete environment. So there's all sorts of continuities, I mean, radical innovation, but absolutely within her own genetic understanding of artistic practice. And there are wonderful pictures of her in the 60s in those early mirrored rooms, aren't there? Yeah, like a tiny, tiny person dressed in extraordinary clothes she'd made herself, covered in dots, painting brilliantly coloured dots in poster paint on these large, naked American men. I mean, they're (laughs) kind of brilliant. Very serious and very, very funny. 
Yeah, indeed. And let's talk, in a way, I think of the Mirrodrums almost like the sort of culmination of all the ideas in the sense that you got in this particular uh, installation that we're going to talk about, you've got the lights, which are sort of like the polka dots, but you've also got this idea of a cosmos. So so you have the sort of micro and macro all at once. I mean, another way of putting it, you have the intimacy and the infinity. And I think that's why people find them so engaging because it's an extraordinary kind of physiological experience to walk into this almost completely dark space, captivated by these twinkling lights, uh, occasionally plunged into darkness with, with a flaw that because of the way she creates the depth of water, you, are, you literally feel you are hovering in space. So it's a kind of out-of-body experience and very moving. It's extraordinary. When we, we had this work, was first realised in the exhibition we did at Tate Modern in 2011. And I just remember the quite often in the mornings having the privilege of going into this space and sitting on the floor, not the wet bit, but the dry bit, and really being, I mean, just transported. Very, very moving, very intimate and very expansive. It's sort of kind of the place, like when you're on the top of a cliff, you feel you could happily die. You know, you are transported to another realm. There was a sort of big gap, wasn't there, between those 60s works and what we think of as the sort you know, this this now long series of Infinity Rooms. What accounts for that distance between those two periods? Well, I think the distance was, I mean, Kusama was, as we know, an artist who was born in Japan, born in the East, came to the West, uh, forged her career in the kind of conjunction of East and West in her terms of her practice, became a very radical artist in New York, but burnt out. She was too radical for her time. And she went back to uh, Japan, uh, kind of on the verge of collapse. Uh, her, her, her mental health already fragile and really kind of shattered. And for two decades, she found her way artistically through other means. She was in hospital for a while. She began making small works in clay. She did a lot of drawing. She wrote novels, extraordinary novels that that speak to those mental health issues. So she resumed her career big time, really in the 1990s on the international stage. Um, But what is interesting is that the the, the ties of... um, Uh, those new works, although profoundly different because they speak of a different age, they're the end of the 20th century, absolutely connect with all those concerns that she uh, really, you see, emerging in her very earliest work in the 1950s. And then you see reenacted in America through installation, through sculpture, through performance, through these huge paintings. So it's a story of rupture and, and also continuity. And the really interesting thing, I think, about Kusama is that... I mean, it's very telling and relevant to our age. Her career, her, her artwork, you know, she lived through and made art through dictatorship, uh, through world war, through nuclear annihilation, uh, through the era of protest in America, uh, a revolutionary politics, through conservatism in Japan, and always comes out of those deeply traumatising experiences with something extraordinary. And just to have that resilience alongside the fragility of her mental health with this moment when we come out of COVID and we're probably coming out of one pandemic into another pandemic of mental health is, is a kind of, you know, just a really amazing lesson for all of us, I think. 
Can you describe to us that that experience you had? I mean, I think you said that the first Infinity Room that you saw by Kusama was in was in Venice at the 1993 Biennale, where there was the yellow and black mirror yeah. room, and that was the kind of that was really her entrance onto the international stage for that new era, right? I think for a lot of people, uh, myself included, we encountered uh, Kusama without knowing her history in the 90s as this extraordinary contemporary artist. And it was only subsequently through uh, one or two major American exhibitions and then she'd had a show in Oxford and then at the Serpentine that we began to look back and see this incredible history. And for me, it was like connecting those two things that that awakened my interest in her. But so the the Venice was extraordinary and uh, captivating. But then subsequently, I also had an experience of her work in New Zealand in 2011 when I went to see her show, I think it was The Mirrored Years uh, at the Wellington City Art Gallery. I think a show originated by uh, MCA in Sydney. And that was really interesting because that was the first time I kind of understood the phenomena of Kusama, this kind of huge celebrity, because I, as I approached the building, it was there were people snaking in a queue all around the courtyard, and then going into the building, there were lines to go into these infinity mirrored rooms, which were kind of encased in walls, and you were invited in by a guard for literally, I think it must have been like fifty or sixty seconds max. And it was that experience of the kind of tantalisingly brief immersion that really guided my conversation when I went to see Kusama immediately after that visit to Wellington to talk about how to deal with mirror rooms in our exhibition. And it was that conversation and the challenging the convention of one in, one out that gave her the idea of doing this kind of super big mirror room for Tate Modern, which is not just bigger, than the conventional mirror rooms, but has an entrance and an exit. So you, you kind of journey through infinity to the beyond. And, and that was a really successful outcome. One of the things that, that obviously people talk about is how Instagrammable the infinity mirror rooms are. And it's true, they are so photogenic. And, and we all of us have been in that situation where we've taken a snap of ourselves in these spaces. One of the things that's often missed is how that element is almost like part of the work. It's Kusama's obsession with repetition is carried on by her audience, right? Absolutely. But it's not just that her obsession with uh, repetition, it's also her obsession with putting herself or oneself at the centre of the work. And one of the striking things about Kusama's career is that from the very earliest years, from her teenage years, she took great pains to document her work and her place within the studio or the exhibition. So there's an incredible history of extraordinary portraits of Kusama, centre stage, often dressed for the part in clothes she's made herself or really amazing designer gear, right from those early days of Matsumoto in Japan through New York. And you identify with the work in the way that she identifies with it. So it's a kind of, and she talks, it's like a merging of self. It's a merging of the visitor with Kusama. And so it's absolutely true to the work that, that you should capture it and you should Instagram it. But the only thing that I think really doesn't come through is the sense of duration. And what is beautiful about 
filled with the brilliance of life. It's a it's a two minute sequence, so it's quite a long sequence compared to many of her mirror works. But if you try to narrate the colours, and we've tried to do this, you know, it's green, green and blue, blue, green, red, red, purple and blue, blue and white, pink, red, white, yellow, blue, green, red, green, and and it's an endless, infinite sequence of colours. You cannot. We haven't yet found a way to get back to the beginning. So I don't know what technology is driving it, but it's kind of brilliant. It's totally arbitrary. And once every 50 or 60 seconds, you are plunged into the absolute infinity of darkness. So all that joy and brilliance is is counterbalanced by these moments of absolute panic. And again, it feels very, very um, akin to the kind of experiences that we've all been having with COVID of, you know, calm, control, and then suddenly you're hit by this kind of overwhelming sense of panic. Kusama's ability, and you see it all through her work, to play off the safe sound with danger, uh, pleasure with pain, dark with light, serious with the comedic. And she just, she's able to orchestrate that in in a way that, that is, I suppose, sort of deeply manipulative because you're not aware it's happening. It's only afterwards. And maybe that's a sign of the, the, her genius, that, that she does that in, in a non-narrative way. She uses colour, light, um, pulse, rhythm to do that. And so you get in this two minutes, you know, it's almost kind of operatic in its intensity. It's, it's really interesting you say that, this idea of, in, in a way, by stealth, illustrating quite complex ideas, because this idea of self-obliteration, it's not an obvious one, but it's actually, it just happens to you when you're in these spaces, right? It's such, it's such a key cornerstone of her philosophy, isn't it? Well, it's a, I suppose it's a cornerstone of, it's not just her philosophy, but it's her experience of life. And as Kusama documented her life with uh, photographs, she also uh, was an avid autobiographer and began writing a deeply intimate uh, confessional uh, autobiographical um, narratives from, from New York onwards. And um, there's no reason to doubt the telling of her experiences as a child, where she would occasionally... Uh, she was brought up in Matsumoto, a, a hill town north of Tokyo, in a, in a kind of rural uh, milieu. Her parent, her father had a seed, you know, had a, had a market garden. So she spent a lot of time in the open with flowers and would be occasionally overwhelmed. She'd have a kind of vision where her, her vision was occluded with hazy dots. And I don't know what a, what a psychoanalyst would make of it, but clearly there were moments where she was very confused, very doubtful, uh, and very engaged in a kind of, you know, panic. And, and the use of dots is, has, she's always talked about that as trying to, and the nets as trying to, uh, mechanisms for trying to recapture that experience and convey it to other people. And again, the imperative to surround people with dots or nets, again, is to the idea of you immerse them in that very powerful uh, experience that she felt as a child and has continued to feel uh, since. It's interesting that, you know, even when you are with Kusama, she evidently experiences moments of deep panic. You see it when she's in the studio. She she draws on her assistants to support her. It's absolutely something she's lived with. And she's an extraordinary person. She has managed and created this extraordinary career in spite of, or maybe also because of, her her mental vulnerabilities. A little bit like Louise Bourgeois. She, Kusama is driven by those uh, personality traits that might bring other people down. You've mentioned COVID and 
inevitably that is going to affect the way that people can experience this work. But you've said there's an entrance and an exit, and that's crucial, isn't it, in COVID times? Absolutely crucial. But of course, we have a second uh, infinity uh, mirror room at Tate, which is a walk-in, walk-out one, one person or group, hand sanitizer afterwards. Um, and tellingly, I think its title is Chandelier of Grief. So again, it's completely uh, not by design. It's just by beautiful coincidence that in the same small exhibition, we have a work that really thinks about the emotion of grief and loss and another work that celebrates the brilliance of life. And again, that just feels like a really wonderful gift as we come out of COVID because, of course, many of our visitors will be experiencing grief and will have gone through really very, very difficult times. So there is a counterbalance there. There's an acknowledgement that, you know, that both those aspects of real joy and real sadness can coexist in our lives. Francis, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Yayo Kusama, Infinity Mirror Rooms will open to take members from the 18th of May and then to the wider public from the 14th of June. It will continue until June 2022. And two of the Infinity Mirror Rooms will feature in one with Eternity, Yayo Kusama in the Hershorn Collection, an exhibition soon to open at the Hershorn Museum in Washington, D.C. The museum's currently closed, but do visit its website to check for announcements. Still to come, I talk to Miku Yoshitake about Kusama at the New York Botanical Garden and to Stephanie Rosenthal about the retrospective at the Gropiusbau in Berlin. But first, here are some of the top stories on the art newspaper's website this week. The Museum of Modern Art is among the New York museums that will increase their visitor capacity to 50% next week under relaxed COVID-19 safety rules unveiled by the state's governor, Andrew Cuomo. As Nancy Kenny reports, other New York museums are scrutinising their safety procedures in response to Cuomo's announcement that they'll be able to admit visitors at half of their normal capacity starting on Monday the 26th of April. The Metropolitan Museum of Art has been cautiously expanding its visitor capacity while inching towards the previous maximum of 25%. It won't boost that capacity to 50% on Monday. Advanced reservations for time tickets will still be necessary at all New York museums. US museums have expressed relief at the guilty verdict announced this week of the former police officer Derek Chauvin for the murder of George Floyd last May, but stressed there's still a long way to go to achieve racial justice in the country. The San Francisco Museum of Modern Art said in a statement, quote, This is a step in the right direction, but there's still much work to be done to confront the devastating reality of police brutality and systemic racism. As Gareth Harris and Annie Shaw write, among other responses, the new museum in New York posted a work by Carrie Mae Weems from its show Grief and Grievance, Art and Mourning in America. Weems's work from her 2016 All the Boys series shows a portrait of a black man in a hooded sweatshirt matched with a text that evokes a police report. A response, the museum says, to the persistent killing of black men and women by various authorities. International researchers have discovered why one of four closely related paintings by Pablo Picasso has deteriorated more quickly than the others. James Imam reports that the research centred on four paintings is by, by the Ballet Russe, which 
Picasso produced in Barcelona in 1917. Stored in Picasso's family home until 1970 and then donated to the Museo Picasso in Barcelona, the works have been exposed to identical environmental conditions. Yet Ombre Santaro, or Seated Man, has deteriorated more severely than the other three paintings. The reason? Picasso used a canvas with a tighter weave and coated it in a thicker layer of animal glue, leading to internal stresses formed when the paintings were exposed to fluctuating humidity. Chemical reactions between certain pigments and binding media cause paints to degrade. You can read these stories and much more at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iPhone and iPad, which you can get from the App Store. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. This month, Christie's presents two exciting online-only auctions. Messi, The Boots That Made History, is a charity sale of Lionel Messi's record-breaking Adidas boots used to score his 644th goal for Barcelona, the most ever netted for a single club. Signed and donated by Messi himself in aid of the Valdebron Hospital's Art and Health Programme, bidding closes on the 30th of April. Alongside this, Reborn, Modern and Contemporary is an online sale dedicated to Italian and international artists at the forefront of the most important artistic movements of the 20th and 21st centuries. It encompasses paintings, photographs, ceramics, prints and multiples. Bid until the 6th of May on works by Fausto Melotti, Cindy Sherman, Alghiero Boetti, Sol Witt, Lucia Fontana and Pablo Picasso. Find out more at christies.com. Welcome back. A reminder that you can catch up on all the episodes of our sister podcast, A Brush With, featuring in-depth conversations with some of the great artists of our time. You can listen and subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you're listening now. Now, the New York Botanical Garden has just opened Kusama Cosmic Nature, staged across the garden's landscape, in and around its conservatory and in its library building. As Francis mentioned, Kusama grew up in a seed nursery and has had a lifelong fascination, indeed obsession, with the natural world. I spoke to Mika Yoshitake, a leading specialist in Japanese art who curated the phenomenal six-venue US tour of Kusama's Infinity Rooms between 2017 and 2019 and has organised the Botanical Gardens show. Mika, in your essay and the show in general, you make it very clear that nature is absolutely at the heart of Kusama's work. Can you explain why? Yes, uh, nature is absolutely one of the most important visceral embodiments in Kusama's practice. She grew up in a seed nursery that was owned by her family and um, was surrounded by greenhouses and fields. And I think the biological cycles of life and death were very much absorbed from an early age. Her interpretation and translation of uh, nature through her work is something that is very uh, unique in that she combines the cosmic and the botanical worlds. And in my essay, I I do um, explore that relationship or that kind of interconnectivity between nature, human nature and cosmic nature let's explore the early years more because it is so fascinating that early period as you say she grows up in this seed nursery and of course in the botanical garden show there is this greenhouse Mm -hmm. can you tell us a bit about you know is that a very deliberate reference to her early years yes For the Botanical Garden, we have a greenhouse that's called Flower Obsession. It's inspired by the greenhouse that she grew up in, and visitors will be given uh, stickers that have 10 different 
kinds of coral colored flowers. It's very different from, she has another installation called the Obliteration Room, where you know visitors are given polka dots and it's a very, very white domestic space usually, and a white space that is then obliterated by these you know colorful dots. But in this case, it's outside and it's out in nature and the um, greenhouse itself it's not white. It's kind of like, you know, walking into someone who's about to, you know, plant various flowers or have some tea inside the greenhouse. And so the vision actually began, um, you know, early on when she had these hallucinations of flowers spreading from herself onto the tablecloth into um, the walls and everything. And so we actually have a tablecloth inside the greenhouse with the flowers. And so um, it's a deliberate reference, but also just this kind of expansion into the natural world. I mean, that is really fascinating, isn't it? That the polka dots emerge from that hallucination, don't they? So mm-hmm. the polka dot, which in a way is her most famous motif, yes. emerged directly from a floral reference. Well, that's the most famous reference, um, but she also has written about these pebbles that she sees um, on a riverbed right outside of her home and how they're glistening in the sun, thousands of pebbles. And so um, to me, I think that that memory is very connected to one of the earliest kind of memories connected to this vision of infinity and the cosmos. Can you tell us a bit more about her early experience with a pumpkin? Because that was on that farm, right? Among the seeds and everything else, she discovers her first pumpkin. Yes. So her grandfather was uh, taking her through the fields in the greenhouse. And she remembers very vividly um, this pumpkin that appeared in a field of, I think it was zinnias and periwinkles. And the form of the pumpkin was so bodily. And um, I think it was almost cute and grotesque at the same time. And she remembers thrusting her hand and grabbing the stem of the pumpkin and um, seeing the sap ooze. There's a very kind of sensibility that she has already, where it's not just this, you know, character or cute. It's, It's this feels almost, you can sense it, taste it, smell it. And it's that kind of experience that I think really resonates to this day in her depiction of the pumpkin. Indeed. And in in, in some of those early drawings, for instance, you you talk about those early resonances. Again, it's not an affectation, is it? These early drawings featured these sort of dotted forms across the drawings, right? Yes. uh, Some of her earliest drawings, there's actually, we didn't focus on it, but it was a self-portrait of her mother. It's the earliest that you see... um, her vision of, so she has polka dots on the self-portrait and on the verso, um, there is a vase with a flower inside and it's also, um, the background is all um, polka dotted. So, you know, she trained uh, with very traditional Nihonga Japanese style painting in Kyoto. And actually um, going back to the pumpkin, she remembers when she had to draw one pumpkin for a whole month. And so that was part of the training. So it's very kind of photorealistic kind of drawings that she she began doing. But then she quickly is bored of that kind of academic training and uh, starts to go into these more abstract, surrealist um, depictions of nature. Before we go into that, I'm really intrigued by these drawings that she made when she was 16, which actually are in the library at the Botanical Garden, aren't they, that yes. you've, you've included in the show. Tell us about those because they're, they're exquisite, aren't they? Yes, the sketchbooks. So she would go into the fields and sketch 
not only the blossoming flowers, but also the decaying buds and identify each part of the flower. So she's very knowledgeable about each part of these um, plants. And um, they are exquisite. There's various kinds of, you know, peonies. And in the book, uh, we have Joanna Gorka, who actually has analyzed these. And then, yes, it becomes much more abstract. What's amazing about the work when it becomes more abstract and it becomes more and a very surrealist influence, clearly, mm-hmm. is that there is this very direct connection that you were talking about earlier on, a kind of bodily sense, but also this completely extravagant realm of the imagination. Yeah, very fantastical. So what I noticed, you know, she has this very anthropomorphic quality to some of her early paintings. And there's a painting we have featured in the gallery called Self-Portrait. And that is a a sunflower, but then there's a pair of uh, lips underneath the, the sunflower. And so it becomes this face. And, and what I discovered, and this was while I was installing the exhibition, uh, was that she already is depicting the nets underneath the self-portrait. So that was very early on, um, 1950, so she was 21. She also talks about, if you understand my work, then you have to, it's as if, you know, you're, I'm, I'm talking through these flowers or these rocks or these trees. And so she really kind of uh, captures herself within these states of nature. The aspect of those works that intrigues me most is the way that she's fusing Nihonga and Yoga, the Japanese painting style and Western painting, Mm -hmm. right? And it's very much a sort of direct fusion of the two. Yeah, I mean, at the time in the 40s, there was, I think, a direct departure from, you know, Nihonga and Yoga were more turn of the century, um, late 19th century and to the early 20th century. And I think a lot of artists were especially um, directly after the war trying to find a visual language that was, you know, realism was being questioned. And, um, you know, surrealist expressions were also banned, I think, during the war. And uh, a lot of artists had to um, convert their abstract praxis into much more of a realistic, you know, for the war effort. And so um, there, this was a time where where nature actually was was a vital resource for uh, representing this very complex state of nihilism, chaos, and um, the suffering from the ravages of war. And, and then when she makes this big leap into this world of New York, um, immediately those works, I mean, they were wonderful pictures of that period. For instance, there's that extraordinary um, picture of her with my flower bed from 1962, which is this enormously threatening um, <laughs> flower creation. Can you tell us a bit about that? She's, she's, so she expands her artistic language, but again, nature, nature remains very much at the heart of it, doesn't it? Yes. So she moves to New York in uh, 1958 and her practice really shifts from, you know, she was creating these incredible works on paper um, before then. But yes, the sculpture that you're talking about, um, that's from 1962, it's like a carnivorous plant um, that is about to devour her. Um, she's made th- like thousands of these uh, stuffed and sewn fabrics out of fire gloves um, and spray paints them red. And so, you know, it's it's this fantastical vision of nature that she begins to develop. And you'll see that through the 80s and, you know, um, to the present day. 
and so and you and as you said you can directly link the infinity nets paintings which actually look abstract yeah. objectively you would say they were abstract paintings but you can link them too to those kind of nature studies effectively well the infinity net paintings were actually inspired by her flight over the pacific ocean so some of the early paintings are actually titled pacific ocean and so the the waves the currents that she saw of the ocean from the airplane are um, directly related to the infinity nets are made one by one through these intricate arcs. But from afar, they look like there is this, you know, pattern. You can see her hand, the movement of her body, and that it resonates with the ocean currents. And I suppose one of the things that resonates most with the Botanical Garden show, of course, is that in 1966 at the Venice Biennale, she creates her first Narcissus Garden. That's an extraordinary piece. Tell us more about it. So Narcissus Garden was a kind of guerrilla art installation that uh, Kusama did in 1966. She wasn't officially invited to the Venice Biennale, but she (laughs) participated by bringing thousands of these stainless steel orbs And um, she actually had help from Lucio Fontana at the time to fund this. Um, And she was selling these orbs for $2 each. And it was just kind of this um, cheeky (laughs) criticism against the way that pop art was so popular. And, um, you know, she was, she still um, identifies herself as an avant-garde artist. And, um, and she was also dressed in this very metallic kimono, you know, um, orientalizing herself, knowing full well, you know, people were just going to eat that up. So, um, and, but yet, yes, that installation, which was outside on a garden, uh, back in 66, has been translated into this beautiful, um, you know, in the botanical garden, we have, I think it's the native plant garden where they have the water and the orbs just flow within, with the wind currents. And um, you can see it right now, there are cherry blossoms blooming. And so you can see the reflections of um, these trees and yourself. And yeah, and that piece, I would say, is the one that really uh, reflects, you know, the natural, the human and the cosmic all in one. It's it's an extraordinary thing. I've seen it. I've seen it both inside and outside. Actually, that piece and it it never ceases to be spellbinding. It, what I love about it is that the units are, are very obvious. You're looking at a series of stainless steel orbs, and yet somehow there's this sort of phenomenological experience that happens where yes. we're sort of transcended beyond what the material tells us. It is, you know, that's absolutely true. Yes. And yes, because I think the relativity of one's body in relation to the the world, our natural coexistence of things, we it becomes kind of balanced. So it's not just, you know, humans overtaking nature, but we are tiny, you know, in the reflections. And so I think that it's a very humbling experience. There's a wonderful sequence in that film, the self-obliteration film from 1968, which people can you can actually find it on YouTube, uh, yes. listeners, if you want to if you want to watch it. But there's a mm-hmm. wonderful scene where she is in the middle of a lake and she's mm-hmm. effectively painting dots in the water yes. and they disappear. Can you tell us a bit about that work and, and what what was she trying to do here? Yes, yeah, so it's incredible. It's a performance. She is in Woodstock and she's wearing this straw fisherman hat. And she begins by, you know, she has a paintbrush and red paint and she's she's got paper, I think that's floating on the water and she starts to to paint polka dots. 
um, on the paper, but then of course, effectively, it, it um, she starts to paint onto the water. And, um, you know, for anyone who's done this, you know, the, the paint does exist on the water for a little while, and then it starts to dissolve um, and open up through each ripple of the water. And I think it's such a really poignant piece. I love works that are immaterial like that. And I think so much of her work is, you know, solid sculpture or painting. And that's one moment when you can really see her vision of the polka dot really expand. It's not just this kind of abstract form. It's, you know, it's the sun, the moon, and how it dissolves into your surroundings and how you yourself will eventually dissolve back into the earth. One of the periods that is least known of her work is that period where she initially returns to Japan and she's making smaller scale work so we there's a sort of radical 60s period that has now become pretty well known and of course her more recent works but really really fascinatingly in the botanical garden show you've got these works from the 70s which again are they're they're very diverse in their response to nature but they're studies in paint which have Mm -hmm. all sorts of fascinating elements to them yes uh, the work that she engaged in after she returned to Japan in 1973. I mean, she went through quite a period of depression, uh, but she, you know, started doing these incredible um, collages. And so we have some included in the exhibition and they're um, photo cutouts, uh, fabrics, and they have the subterranean, you know, quality of the underworld. And there's a piece called Pistols Swaying in the Wind from 1978, which um, has a direct relationship to the more colorful imagery that you see now. But um, yeah, I think that the work going into the late 70s and then into the early 80s is very much um, still under-recognized. I don't know what it is about that decade, but um, <laughs> in, and, and her, you know, her condition and being in back in Tokyo, but it, there's, there's a lot to explore there. Yeah, there's certainly something quite poignant about them, precisely because of the life circumstances at that moment. They have a kind of terrific power about them, don't they? Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then you get to this sort of what we might call the mature period of her work, where she's become a sort of global superstar in terms of mm-hmm. both the art world and beyond. Um, mm-hmm. How did you go about choosing the works that you feature? Because obviously, there's quite a lot of work from this period that you you could have chosen from. Tell us about the works that you you're showing in the botanical garden show and what what resonance they have. Well, um, we, of course, wanted to include a lot of work outside. So we have about 11 installations um, and those were chosen, you know, in consultation with the studio and um, with the New York Botanical Garden staff. And um, we wanted to, of course, have uh, new work too, but something that also expands from the early years into the present. So the dancing pumpkin. It's this 11 tentacled, huge 16 foot sculpture. We actually saw a maquette of it in the studio. And I just, when I saw it, I was like, you know, this is going to be so uh, mind boggling for people who are used to the more conventional pumpkin. But um, I just thought that it was super resonant with the 1950s works on paper and just the way that she integrates so many different imageries into one. And um, it is this kind of surrealist strategy of doubling, you know, and um, you have, it looks like a jellyfish, it looks like an octopus, it looks like a pumpkin. Um, it's very Kusama. And so um, 
I was attracted to sculptures and installations that, you know, could really speak to the range of her, her aesthetic, you know, throughout her career. And then um, I want to fly to the universe, which is this almost starfish looking floral creature with a very uh, kind of ancestral face and um, looks, you know, pointing to the sun. And we installed it so that it was facing the sun as it rises from the east. And then we also have the Narcissus Garden, which of course is from the 60s. Um, and then Ascension of Polka Dots, which are these uh, polka dotted fabric, red fabric um, that uh, line the trees of the botanical gardens. And it was um, really interesting to see the in dialogue between, you know, her work, which is not really blending into the landscape. It's really heightening the forms of and outlining the trees, which some visitors might not, um, you know, usually look up into, you know, because the flowers are so beautiful. Um, so I just thought it was a great interplay between the way that um, she, her work and the natural, you know, landscape really kind of connected. And is it right that you wanted the work effectively to correspond with the seasons as they change? Absolutely. The meaning of the works actually are um, heightened by the shifts that happen through nature. And so actually in one, inside the conservatory, there is a flower path that is inspired by one of her paintings um, called Alone Buried in the Garden. And the horticulturist will change the flowers according to the seasons. And so the work will shift, even though it's, you know, inspired by this one painting, you know, it changes. The nature of the flower path will change based on the seasons. And it leads up to this uh, sculpture called Starry Pumpkin. Um, and it's incredible to see. That is also inspired by the meadows. It's kind of like coming upon a pumpkin you know, as, as Kusama is walking through um, her the meadows and fields of her uh, seed nursery with her grandfather. So yeah, and those flowers will change as well with the seasons. And so I love that the works are alive. They make the works much more alive rather than in a white cube space. Lastly, I'd, I wanted to ask about Kusama's living circumstances and how she accesses nature today because one of the things that's, that's occurred to me and from all the reports and all the the interviews I've read with her she lives a very urban existence and yet her work is still full of nature so does the work become a kind of escape into nature for her effectively sort of living nature vicariously through the work yeah I mean she lives in her hospital room where she actually is working on lots of paintings um, week by week and she's very productive still, and um, it's close by her studio. And she has her staff come and check in and report to her every day. And um, I mean, I imagine that she does go outside. Um, I, I have a picture of her from the 70s in the hospital, but it's it, there is a garden. And um, she's wearing this really nice, beautiful hat. And so I think... Um, yeah, the hospital is in, in Shinjuku. It's very, very urban there. And so um, I think you're right that there is perhaps this, you know, living vicariously through her work. <laughs> There's so much hope in her work 
she's gone through a lot of suffering through the 60s and then, you know, still to this day. But I think her artwork is a form of healing for her. So nature, of course, the depictions that she has in her work are a source of healing for her. Mika, thank you so much for talking to us. Sure, thank you. Kusama Cosmic Nature is at the New York Botanical Garden until the 31st of October. And finally, Berlin's Gropiusbau has just opened a major retrospective of Kusama's work, including a new installation in its atrium. I spoke to the show's curator, the Gropiusbau's director, Stephanie Rosenthal, about the show. Stephanie, can you tell us something about your approach to this exhibition? Because it occurs to me that Kusama is now such a sort of globally renowned figure. She's one of those figures that's cut through from the art world into the sort of wider public consciousness to a degree. What's, what is it important for you to say in this exhibition that maybe isn't as well established about her? Yeah, exactly. I think it was really the hope from our side to do an exhibition, which on the one hand is is for really wide public, and on the other hand also um, break new ground in relation to research, and also for people who have seen a lot of Kusama shows and are more interested in the academic side. So there's there's one aspect which we um, did a lot of research on is Kusama in Germany and Europe. So we've kind of did research on the shows she had, like, the, for example, the Driving Image show at the Thelen Gallery in Essen, a show she did in The Hack, her love room. So works which, you know, we discovered partly they have been shown, but never contextualized in this really what we call the Europe focus. So there we did completely new research. And also we've decided to present her work very much from her perspective. So saying that we decided that it is a chronological installation. So you start with the very early work and you end with the very late work. But we again did these focus rooms where we decided um, to basically recreate exhibitions in the way she has done them to show how has actually Kusama installed her own works. Because obviously if you do a retrospective, you know, one of the points besides selecting the works is also to think about how do we present the works? Do we want to do it in, you know, how we show her work today? Let's say not be interested in how was she hanging it or how was she combining it? More saying we get alone. It's a beautiful work. You know, we put it on the wall. And so we decided very much to in these focus from these eight exhibitions to really reflect what has she done at the time when she did this works and did the exhibition. So we start with a show she did in 1952. So she's born in 1928. And so she was just in her early 20s when she did this exhibition. It was a show in the place she was born, in Matsumoto, and it was there in the City Gallery. And she decided already then, which was fascinating for me, that she wants to show 270 works in a space, you know, where if I would walk into today, I would say hmm, 15 to 20 works, maybe. <laughs> and she would do already this, you know, all overhang and, you know, up and down. And so it was interesting to see that already then when the works, I mean, they're also extremely beautiful work, very much like they feel a bit surrealistic, but also botanical motifs, very detailed. 
that she would kind of surround her visitors really with her work. You know, you would basically dive in it. So that's what we're talking about today from the immersive works. I mean, which obviously have been developed since the 60s with lots of other artists. But even then, you know, in 52, she would already install her work like that. So that was the other research we did together with our architects, Lechtare Studio, to really try to go to the sites where she has thrown, to redraw the floor plans, to really understand how was she combining the works, you know, what, so like the forensic work in the relation to buildings and architecture, which was really interesting also for me and was, um, yeah, another, I think, new aspect, which we kind of really unfolded a bit more how she was working and installing her work. Is one of the challenges in a way to kind of deepen the complexity around her work. If you're making a retrospective, you have to, on the one hand, engage the public in these sort of extraordinary works, which they have become so engaged with, but also in a way sort of complicate the kind of candy-coloured kookiness that, that she's perhaps become associated with. Yeah, I think you described that really uh, very well. I think her show, in a way, you know, can be a, a, a walk through art history. Because especially, I mean, she, you know, is is basically the peer of of so many artists of the of the the fifties in New York who have basically, you know, written art history. And and we know lots of people have been left out, but still, it's the beginning of you know uh, minimalism. You know, it's it's like the all over is Alan Capra with envi- his environment. I mean, it's it's a lot of um, things which are happening at these times. And you basically go through her work and you see how much she was part of that art history and also how much has happened, you know, in these in these years from like, you know, her infinity net paintings, which are kind of, you know, feel like this is a minimal listic approach even in her case it's slightly different but you still have you know we have a whole room where you feel like oh I, I kind of understand this is the reducing this is in her case then of course again it's this engaging with the infinite vision of you know her basically I think really merging with the outside but then you go into the accumulations and the soft sculptures where of course then if you think of Klaus Oldenburg who did it just slightly later so you kind of have these sculptural aspects with like the different phallic objects and you know all this the kind of importance of the body at that time and the performative practices we know from that time the you know radical political statements she did yes and I think so doing the show like that you really see with how many you know aspects she has involved from like of course the the Vietnam War the kind of new laws around homosexuality where she was very engaged with becoming a fashion designer you know where she also very much kind of exp- Explored the erotic side in a way of of dresses. So I think very. So you do really see how complex her engagement with art. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, one of the key things it seems to me. I mean, you alluded to the fact that she was making soft sculpture before Oldenburg. There, she did wallpaper before Warhol did wallpaper. One one of the things that maybe is it's important to establish is is just how radical her work was in the sixties. I mean, it was definitely groundbreaking. And I think the 60s in New York, I'm still fascinated by that time. And I I wrote my PhD at the time about actually paintings, but that a whole group of artists was really, um, you know, crossing the boundaries between art forms, you know, were questioning the whole idea of making art, you know, kind of working against the object. And she was definitely part of that. It's a good point to say, you know, she wasn't recognized for this enough. 
I mean, my experience is it's very hard to say who was first, you know, because these things just pop up. And I, I would not go as far as saying, you know, a Warhol has copied her, but definitely she wouldn't take it from Warhol. With Oldenburg, I think there is this, just the energy, I think, in the conversations which happened at the time, um, she was absolutely on, on the forefront. And I think with her performances, even more. And for example, my main interest in her work has always been you know, always said, I'm just interested in Kusama's performances because this is where I feel, you know, it's also a bit where I'm, uh, where my interest lies, but I, I was not so interested in the other works because I felt the performance works is really where she was the most progressive, where she was exploring the body, you know, the, the body in relation to also sculpture uh, the political statements she made with it. And also, I mean, she she became persona non grata in Japan because of that, because the openness, the, the kind of freedom, you know, in relation to nudity, the orgy magazine she published, you know, where she was advertising dildos and kind of, you know, so was writing about, you know, free sex. And so there, there is a lot of that. But I, I do actually think now that her whole work just is one, you know, it's it's actually really belongs together. I think through her, you know, what she also says, obsession. I think you can't actually say this is more radical than that. It's one. And I think this is really how she has, in a way, then developed her work. So I think her merchandising is not to make money. Her merchandising is because she wants to really bring her forms into the world. And I think she does that by painting the skin of people with dots, by painting teapots and you know walls and like just creating this other parallel world nearly so that she's really up to now is still kind of creating new ways of expressing herself yeah, but to tell us a bit more about about her time in Europe then because the the sort of established narrative to a certain extent is you know her early years in Japan then her time in the US and then returning to Japan so what happened in Europe she herself also writes in her autobiography that actually from the mid 60s late and then to the late 60s early 70s she was much more present in Europe she had met Udo Kultermann who's like one of our kind of important museum directors and and, and art historians and he had even been across he came across her work when she did her infinity net painting so already in the 50s and asked her to participate in an exhibition in in Germany then and has promised her apparently because I could read that in her letters he must have promised her a solo show in Germany <laughs> because there are these letters where she's saying Udo I'm just wondering <laughs> so you said there'll be a solo show she, she was very you see so she she had a real plan for her career so he arranged um solo shows for her so she had um shows in Germany but also became very close to um Dutch artists artists who were kind of um also involving her in either group or solo shows. So she was pre presented by that gallery, Thelen and Essen. She had a kind of main gallery, Ores Gallery, where she had several shows. She was invited to Gelsenkirchen, which was like an artist village, to work for a while. She was in Italy working with Lucio Fontana, working in his studio, and also did this work uh, at the Venice Biennale. She was part of the Sedlec exhibition, the Null exhibition. So she was very much around then in, in, in Germany, meeting people, placing her work, 
doing one of the very early kind of nudity um, performances also in the Netherlands. So there was a lot of exchange for her. While how she describes it, she felt like New York was over. I mean, I don't, you know, there is the one story of saying that New York was too hard for her. And also after Joseph Cornell, her partner passed away, um, she felt, you know, there's no stability for her. But there's some quite interesting letters um, where she's describing that, you know, it's after Europe, when she went back to New York, that um, it's just not happening there anymore. And she felt it, it makes more sense to go to Japan. I think it's a, it's a combination. But so she really felt that it was more dynamic at that point in Germany. So tell me about installing for a show during the COVID period, because when I think about visiting Kasama shows in the past, for instance, at the Tate Modern show, which was probably nearly a decade ago now, there was the white room where people were sticking the sticky dots everywhere. And then there's the infinity rooms, which are these light based pieces where it's tight spaces and there's all these wonderful Instagrammable spaces that, you know, you, that basically are very participatory and people are very close to each other. So how do you install a show when you have restrictions and everything else in, in, and keep that sort of playful participatory element? I mean, partly we were lucky because we some of the works we hadn't planned. So we were not just also because, as you say, Usually a Kusama show has to engage with how do we deal with this huge amount of visitors and how can we still experience Kusama's work without feeling we're in a zoo, you know. So we've had already restricted these works of complete, you know, putting stickies on or because we felt that might be difficult. And now it's more the, the other way around um, that, you know, because there are, of course, different limitations and we will have, you know, per time slot, only a few visitors. There are different issues. And as you say, entering an infinity room, we had to, with the agreement of the studio to change the ventilation of the ones we're having. We're having um, the very early peep show where you only look in. So you don't go in with your whole body. Then we have another one, a famous one, the pumpkin infinity mirror room, where you also only peek in. And we'll have one very early phallus field room where you really are allowed to walk in. With now, you know, for us, long lines would have been a problem with the pandemic. But now, because we only allowed so few people in, <laughs> the lines will also be reduced. I mean, we'll see when I think the regulations go back to more visitors and still keeping the distance, then that will be uh, probably become a bigger issue. The advantage we're having here at the Gropusbau that we have huge spaces. The building is, is very large. And the very new installation she did for our atrium, A Bouquet of Love, I Saw in the Universe, the title, is massive. It's like, uh, you know, it's like the whole atrium, which is like 25 meters long and 20 meters bright. So a lot of people can experience that without, you know, us um, being worried about the, the regulations. And also her new infinity mirror room she did for us is much bigger than the ones she's done before. Luckily, at the end, it didn't become such a big headache, but I think you're right. I had endless discussions with the architects about how do we navigate uh, around that. And so... If we, you know, what we hope in a, in, a, in a few weeks or a month, we'll have more visitors, then we'll, you know, other things will kick in where we just have to restrict um, the access to certain works. Right. And, and lastly, just tell us a bit more about this new work, because it, as you say, it's sort of filling the whole atrium. Is that right? And, and it's, is it right with it's, it's involving inflatable elements? 
Yes, it's a kind of insulation with 16 tentacles, which basically grow from the floor up into the ceiling. And the highest one is 11 meters. And they're all hand sewn. And it's amazing. They have a real, you really feel you're standing in something which is somehow weirdly alive. It's this kind of weird, you know, where you feel like, oh, is this worm still moving? But it's it's massive at the same time. And so it's it's really quite... Um, even more intriguing than you would just see, you know, we've seen a lot of renderings, but then when it's there, also the, the rubber they used has a certain kind of much more, it feels a bit like latex and you know, you have the skin thing. So it's, it's very visceral. So the whole thing is much more alive than I imagined it. So um, it's, it's really, I mean, it's, it's fantastic for the space and it's kind of bright pink with like black dots and the floor is also dotted. So this is really the, you know, what you can imagine if you know Kuzami, you think like, oh yeah, I, this is what I imagine. Uh, you'll see when you come to a show like that. I suspect we're going to be seeing that a lot on Instagram. Stephanie, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. Yayoi Kusama, a retrospective, continues at the Gropius Bau in Berlin until the 1st of August 2021. And Stephanie Rosenthal has created a reading list on Kusama for our book club. Visit theartnewspaper.com to read more. And later this year, the retrospective will travel to the Tel Aviv Museum of Art in Israel. And new My Eternal Soul paintings by Kusama will be shown in London, Tokyo and New York this summer at Victoria Miro in London from the 4th of June as part of an exhibition of new paintings and sculptures, then at David's Werner in New York from the 17th of June and at Ota Fine Arts Tokyo from the 19th of June. And that's all for this episode. You can subscribe to The Art Newspaper at theartnewspaper.com. Click on the subscribe link at the top left of the page and you'll find a range of subscriptions. And do subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already done so. And please give us a rating or review if you've enjoyed it. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Julia Mahalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack. David also does the editing and sound design. Thanks also to Henrietta Bentel and Daniela Hathaway, to this week's guests, Francis, Mika and Stephanie and thank you for listening. See you next week. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.